Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Churfus. I've been planning this episode for quite a while now, almost a year. It's about the simplest and most important food chain imaginable. One person makes food, literally makes it, and another person eats it. And it provides far, far more than mere nutrition. I'm talking about mother's milk. Ask a professional, is mother's milk the best food for a baby? I'd, I'd like to say categorically yes. Is looking at non-nutritional as much as nutritional outcomes, the prevalence of infections or, or the resistance to infection in, in breastfeeding babies, the, the, the patterns of growth, the uh, neurodevelopment, eyesight, intelligence, maternal bonding, uh, and the health of the mother. Uh, th- these are all factors that uh, get babies off to a better start, and uh, a better start generally leads to a better outcome later on. And so when a mother can't feed her baby... It does leave me feeling um, like I'm not measuring up. That somehow I did something wrong, that I'm a failure. I mean, not all the time, but but in my worst moments, this is how I feel, that I'm, I'm in some way less of a mother because I cannot produce enough milk to feed my own son. That's Katie Flynn a friend of mine and a newish mother who graciously agreed to talk to me. And before her, Lawrence Weaver, a paediatrician and consultant on milk and formula for the World Health Organization. And that food chain, tying mother to infant, can be as simple as possible. But it can also be long, extended, and fragile. And that's one reason this episode has taken me so long to pull together, because of the dire shortage in the United States of infant formula, a decidedly unsimple alternative to mother's milk. It started with contamination at one of the largest formula factories in the US. Now just think about that, bacterial contamination of the perfect baby food. I thought it would be quickly sorted out, But almost a year later, the shortage rumbles on, and it's gone far beyond contamination. So, at this point, I finally had to decide that it adds little to the story. And what is that story? Right back to the ancients who uh, wrote about it, they always emphasise the first thing they say about infant feeding is that uh, the best thing is mother's milk. Lawrence Weaver wrote White Blood, a history of human milk. And while the ancients agreed that mother's milk was best, it didn't have to be the baby's own mother. If if a baby was not going to be breastfed, the wet nurse was the next best thing. If you look at the Romans, for instance, uh, domestic slaves who were really living servants and so on, uh, a nurse might look after the child of a well-to-do Roman uh, later on, it became uh, uh, popular among uh, the, uh, the less well-to-do, uh, the, prof- the professional classes uh, in Italy, for instance, in the uh, 14th, 15th centuries, uh, merchants and uh, businessmen and so on. Uh, they, uh, 
employed wet nurses and the arrangements are usually made between the father of the child and the husband of the wet nurse. So there's a sort of sort of business really lay down the law about the qualities of the wet nurse described all throughout history. People looked for healthy young mothers who were well endowed, came from a nice family, were fit and well and had no signs of disease and so on. But there weren't that many. You, you had to take what, uh, what you could. Women have breastfed each other's babies for ever. Amy Brown is Professor of Maternal and Child Health at Swansea University in Wales. And she told me that wet nursing for money was not nearly as common as wet nursing in the community. It's, it's what always used to happen if a baby couldn't be breastfed by their own mother. They would hopefully be breastfed by somebody else because otherwise, in the days before sanitation and formula, they would have probably have died. So it's something that, as a species, we're just used to doing. It's just with the advent of formula and kind of hygiene concerns and more awareness of how diseases are potentially spread, I would say that it's not so common as it used to be. Amy Brown's getting a little ahead of my story by mentioning formula, which is effectively a third choice. In the beginning, there were really only two choices. Mother's milk, not necessarily the infant's own mother, or a mother of a different species, cow or goat or sheep. For animal milk, when you start offering it, makes a difference. To rear a child from birth on cow's milk uh, is extremely unsuccessful, generally. But uh, uh, introducing uh, diluted cow's milk, say, at about three or four months, if it's relatively clean, it's uh, better than nothing, and uh, babies survive. The problem is that different species have milk with different composition. That's the balance of proteins, fats and sugars. Cow's milk has much more protein and a lot less sugar and other carbohydrates than human milk, which tastes thinner and sweeter as a result. For centuries, there was little people could do, apart from diluting cow's milk, as Lawrence Weaver said. But by the middle of the 19th century, chemists could measure the differences, and that quickly delivered results. Once... Uh people started trying to modify or uh, the, the composition of milk and change cow's milk to look like, in inverted commas, more like human milk. They were on their way to producing something more uh, uh, safe. Safe and better for babies. Modified cow's milk opened the door to Henri Nestlé, and his commercially successful Milk Flour for Infants, which was launched in 1867. And by the First World War, uh, really the, the, the formerly of various sort have taken over from wet nursing. Wet nursing comes to an end, really. There's a common thread to commercial wet nursing and formula, and not just that they're a substitute for mother's milk. Both cost money if you want good quality. Formula has been a lifesaver for millions, but 
a disaster for women without much money, without even access to clean water. And even for women who can afford it, contaminated formula can be catastrophic. I know that, and I'm appalled by it. But that's not what this episode is about. So let's just accept that formula can be a miracle. More recently, as medicine has learned how to care for very premature babies, there's an entirely new need for some alternative to mother's milk. The baby may be too young to suckle, and the mother may not yet be ready to produce milk. That's what happened to my friend Katie and her son. He was six weeks early. He was six weeks early. He had a he had a good weight. He was about five pounds three ounces, um, and my placenta failed. Um, so they had to deliver immediately. I started bleeding at five a.m. and we rushed to the hospital and they operated immediately. Um, as a type one diabetic, it was always going to be. Um, an arduous climb for me because type one diabetics are typically under producers and that coupled with my early delivery and the fact that I lost so much blood during the C-section. Um, I'm just, I just don't produce nearly enough to sustain him. Katie's son was in a neonatal intensive care unit, a NICU, where feeding, nourishing the newborn is a crucial concern and one that's been studied by Lindsay Naylor, of the University of Delaware. Most preterm infants have not developed the suck, swallow, breathe that's necessary to feed at the breast or the chest. And so there's usually a nasogastro tube. So the tube that goes up the nose is doing exactly that, is providing human milk uh, to directly to the stomach of the infant. It's not always possible, right? Uh, I wouldn't say that human milk is exclusively used in the NICU, but it is... Uh, very much encouraged by the neonatologists and the nursing staff in the NICU to try as hard as they can to encourage parents to uh, pump to provide milk for their infant because it is considered uh, the best first food. So I started pumping the day after my C-section. Nothing happened for a couple days. And they have lactation consultants who periodically check in on you, ask you what your goals are. Um, and this quite flamboyant uh, sort of Eastern Bloc woman came in and helped me find the quote-unquote rivers of milk in my breasts, <laughs> um, which are not rivers, they're trickles. But she helped sort of uh, extract the colostrum. And I was able to put that on the Q-tip. And then because he was in a little... Um, essentially a, a little closed bassinet, I was able to feed it to him through the hole in the bassinet. That colostrum, the very first milk, is really important in transferring some of the mother's disease resistance to the baby. And it's one reason why pediatricians like Lawrence Weaver say breast is best. Colostrum is also one reason why medical staff in the NICU that Lindsay Naylor studied did what they could to encourage mothers to produce milk. But it isn't easy. It is a co-production process where the baby helps with the stimulation of uh, what's called letdown, uh, which allows the milk to be present. And so if you can't get 
that that mother infant dyad together, then it's very difficult to make to make that happen. And in fact, a number of parents that I spoke to will actually they might pump at the at the bedside, and that really helps uh, to stimulate that that milk production. Katie's son was in the NICU for nearly four weeks. So I would say for the first two full weeks, the only nutrition he was getting was occasionally from my colostrum, but everything was being fed through his veins. So there was there was sort of no outside milk that he was he was getting. It was just sort of like critical nutrients. That's a little unusual. But in any case, once they got home, Katie was able to make use of the kind of community wet nursing that Amy Brown said used to be so common. But this time it was brought right up to date. We had the good fortune of hiring a postpartum doula prior to giving birth. And her sort of main job is to help with learning how to breastfeed and nurse, if that's something we wanted to do, um, and get the most out of it. And if there really isn't enough milk, as there wasn't for Katie, the doula goes into action. The doula put me in touch with other doulas who had people, clients that they were working with. Um, And it's this wonderful group of young mothers who, for whatever reason, they can't feed their own children, their own infants, their milk. So they offer, it's sort of a gift economy, they just give you their milk because they want somebody to benefit from it. And so we, for the first three months, he subsisted solely on donor milk and my own milk. And in addition to it being an incredibly magnanimous, generous gift, you form this instant bond because it is so intimate. You know what I mean? Um, And, you know, I continued to text them and check in on them and how their children are doing, and we send pictures back and forth. And it's it's this really sweet, sort of not very well-known way to get your child the nutrition that he needs. Even the doula network sometimes does fail to deliver the goods. We also have purchased twice now milk from a milk bank, which is the more commercialized, pasteurized version of breast milk. And it is insanely expensive. You know, it's $15 for 100 milliliters of milk. Um, And they'll send you one shipment of 10 of those bottles per week. And that's not even a single day's worth of milk for my son. So it's... It's $150 for 85% of his daily intake, basically. It's really expensive. That's because commercial milk banks get milk from mothers at different stages of lactation, and then they manipulate the composition, a bit like formula, to make it a closer match for the baby of the mother who's buying it. And they pasteurize it too. And all that, they say, costs money. Although volunteer milk banks don't do all that reformulation and their milk seems to be a reasonable substitute. I am continuing to pump. Um, We dispensed with nursing because it was an extra step. Um, The process is really an involved one. You have to clean all of your pump parts and then you you have to nurse the baby and then you have to feed the baby with a bottle and then you have to pump. And it's called a triple feed. And you do that if you don't produce enough because the baby's not going to receive a full feed while you nurse him. But you still want to produce more milk, so you have to pump. So it's just, it's a really long process, and then you have to clean everything again, and then it's time to go again. Um, So if you want to have any sort of life, you sort of can't nurse. Um, And so I opted to just pump and then bottle feed. Um, And then my husband, Mark, can help out with that too, which is great. 
As Katie said, one reason she stopped nursing is that it was such palaver that if she wanted any kind of life, it would be impossible. But even if she could nurse, there's a good chance she'd run into problems. Breastfeeding is no stranger to controversy. A county sheriff in Georgia apologizing after one of his deputies threatened to arrest a woman for breastfeeding in public. This is normal. This is what breasts are for. It's not actually exposed. There's no vulgarity to it. There's no nipples showing or anything like that. It's only here that it's, it's sexualized and sensationalized. Anything a woman does with her breasts generates a tremendous amount of controversy and emotion and uh, heightened opinion from all sorts of people. It was horrifying, absolutely horrifying, that somebody who, like I said, is supposed to protect me would threaten to arrest me and I hadn't even done anything wrong. Meanwhile, today, more than 100 people gathered at the Smithsonian's Hershore Museum to hold a nurse at Nori Akita says she's not an activist. She's just a mom who wants to be able to feed her child. Recently, a British journalist made headlines for her challenge to the Duchess of Cambridge, Kate Middleton, quote, get her royal orbs out to nurse in public. Now, this may well surprise you. It may shock you. But it currently isn't illegal to photograph or film someone who is breastfeeding without their consent. The city did not attempt to prohibit breastfeeding and we fully support the freedom of mothers to breastfeed as long as it doesn't infringe on someone else's freedom. Savannah Shukla says she stopped, he stopped her rather, as she was leaving, asked her to cover up. She says when she told him state law allowed her to nurse in public, well, he told her that if her son unlatched, it would be considered indecent exposure. Julia, let me read you some of these messages which are coming in, and we really are getting many this morning. Do not use the baby as a pretext to wave your breasts around. Use a shawl to make it private. <laughs> that, uh, that's laughable. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think anybody who's breastfed, particularly in public, you're trying to do it discreetly. You're not waving your boobs around. <laughs> I was wearing a big coat and she was properly nestled inside you know, it absolutely wasn't a display of, you know, look at me, look at my breasts. It was, I don't really want to be getting my breasts out in public, but I, I need to do this to feed my daughter. There are lots of different reasons why people seem to be against it. Amy Brown is as puzzled as I am. A big one is the sexualization of the female body, but that one doesn't really make sense either because... The female body is everywhere. There are posters of breasts. There, you know, there are adverts of breasts. You see far more breasts on the beach. They advertise everything from cars to burgers to everything. So it can't actually be about seeing a female breast. I think it's something about some sort of strange conflict between the idea of a mother and her baby and then the woman as a sexual creature um, I don't think people could sort of match that in their minds sometimes and I, I think it, it leads to this strange belief that she's doing something wrong because people who think that women shouldn't breastfeed in public don't think they shouldn't breastfeed they think they just shouldn't be doing it out in front of others it doesn't really make a lot of sense the more you dig the more you think this is a bit odd I would say in the United States in particular, in the UK as well, but I'll speak to the United States context because this is not a universal thing, right? Indeed, the United States and the United Kingdom are kind of outliers. Here's Lindsay Naylor. I think 
we have a really long history of trying to police and surveil women's bodies in particular. And so that extends uh, to feeding babies. It's seen as something that should be somehow policed. Suddenly, someone's opinion about whether or not they think it's appropriate suddenly is the most important opinion in the room. And there's something else that really surprised me. When they compare male and female attitudes, it's often women who are more disgusted by it than men, which is just mind-blowing, really. I think part of it is they may have internalised those sort of patriarchal and misogynistic views about women's bodies and how they should use them. And in some cases, I think they were told generations ago that they shouldn't breastfeed in public and find it really difficult to see now for all sorts of almost subconscious reasons, really. But it's certainly not just men. The latest research shows it's still about a third of the UK public who think that women shouldn't be allowed to breastfeed in public. And as I always say to them, right, so you think that babies shouldn't be able to eat then. But why? That's the bit I don't begin to understand. There's been quite a few interesting studies done around sexism and attitudes to breastfeeding in public. So one interesting study grouped two types of sexism almost. So you had your kind of garden variety sexism where men just didn't like women having power and control in any way that they perceived. So they didn't like breastfeeding in public because it felt that it was women having rights and doing what they wanted and having the power to go out and feed their baby wherever they wanted. The other type was almost a kind of protective, putting women on a pedestal type of sexism, where these men really loved the idea of women breastfeeding, but as long as they did it in private and sort of kind of were meek and mild about it and did it privately, if they breastfed in public, they were seen to sort of fall off their pedestal as the perfect woman because they were out there breastfeeding and exposing their body. It goes back to that point of making the distinction between is it a woman breastfeeding or is it a baby eating? Because we always talk about a woman breastfeeding as if it's something she does for fun or a hobby or, you know, to be as an exhibitionist for the day um, rather than, it, you know, just being her baby eating again. It depends, of course, on how the baby's eating. There's no problem with a baby feeding from a bottle. And Amy Brown thinks that it was the rise in formula that drove objections to breastfeeding in public. In the 1950s, formula milk got pushed so much, so breastfeeding rates really dropped. And the number of women who were just exclusively breastfeeding their baby was really, really low. So I think this is part of the contributor to it, that we weren't used to seeing it anymore. And at the same time, you have the rise of the breast used in advertising and so I think what we became used to was seeing the breast in that form and not the breast in the way that it was meant to be designed to feed babies with. And I think that's kind of how we got into this situation, that when breastfeeding rates started to rise, no one was used to seeing it. But it is perfectly legal. In both the UK and the US, and elsewhere too, a woman's right to breastfeed in public is enshrined in law, no matter what people may think. 
for some reason we think it's a law that can be debated so there's always kind of these surveys do you think a woman should be able to breastfeed in public and it always makes me think well are you asking about other laws in that way should we have to wear seat belts you know should <laughs> things like that we don't ask in the same way what the research actually shows is that more women are worried about being approached and criticised than the number of women who actually ever are. They're worried about the reaction that they're going to get from other people. And when they see stories in the newspapers about women being asked to cover up or asked to leave a shop because they were breastfeeding, then that really increases our anxiety. And it makes me think about, well, why are the newspaper printing that story? What, what is the aim here? Um, is it to try and make women more anxious? I do wonder whether it's a tactic used by some formula companies to try and dissuade women from breastfeeding if they keep asking the question about should women be able to breastfeed in public or making the suggestions that it's embarrassing or wrong or you may face criticism, then that puts women off and then it encourages them to buy more formula milk, etc. That's pretty devious. But then we know what formula makers are capable of. The thing about formula is that it has been really, really good for babies, as well as being really bad under other circumstances. Lawrence Weaver points out that infant mortality dropped as the use of formula went up. We've seen infant mortality go down from about 15 per thousand to about 4 or 5 per thousand in the 20th century, with a decline in breastfeeding in Europe and a, and, and a rise in formula. It's the cleanliness, really, of formulae that in the early days that really saved babies' lives. Cleanliness compared to other substitutes, not to mother's milk and, of course, when it is properly prepared. Now, I'm certainly not going to say women should or should not breastfeed. That's totally up to them and needs to be a decision they're comfortable with. And yet... How is it that this particular thing that we kind of take for granted, right? We're mammals, we lactate. Uh, and there is a lot of evidence that demonstrates that uh, feeding at the side of the body, uh, so chest or breastfeeding, does create a very strong bond between the lactating parent and child, and uh, that it is an important practice for, for both. My own research looks at breastfeeding from a different perspective than just getting milk into the baby. It's about so much more than that. It's about recognising and supporting a woman wanting to be able to use her body in that way. It's about her preferred way of mothering and connecting with her baby because we know that once breastfeeding is established and off to a good start, it can be a really useful tool in caring for your baby because it's, it's really quick, it's instant, it helps to soothe them, it's comforting. It's so much easier in that way than, than making up a bottle of formula. Clearly, there needs to be quite a shift in attitudes among society at large and among mothers. But the fact is that most mothers are perfectly capable of feeding their infants directly if they choose to. Which makes it an even greater shame 
in my opinion, that some women who want to can't. There is so many expectations and there is so much stigma surrounding breastfeeding versus pumping versus nursing versus formula feeding versus bottle feeding. And there are all these societal expectations. And it does leave me feeling um, like I'm not measuring up, that somehow I did something wrong, that I'm a failure. I mean, not all the time, but, but in my worst moments, this is how I feel, that I'm, I'm in some way less of a mother because I cannot produce enough milk to feed my own son. And uh, it's something I desperately wanted to do. And I'm trying as hard as I can try. You know, I'm pumping seven times a day. I wake up in the middle of the night every night and pump. And it's just not enough. And in fact, my production has diminished instead of increased. And that feels like yet another layer of failure. Um, And the research just isn't sort of conclusive in terms of formula versus breastfeeding after a certain number of months. And so I know intellectually that it's okay to feed him formula, but it doesn't feel right. Equally, of course, there are women for whom breastfeeding doesn't feel right. And for women using a bottle, like Katie Flynn, there's a bonus for their partner. Yeah, oh, I think he he really enjoys it. You know, it's a way to bond and... It's a way to feel like I'm actually doing something that is innately important for my own child. You know, this is I'm I am intrinsic to his survival, and I, I I believe he really enjoys it. There's just a very sort of singular way in which we're viewing technology, I guess. That means that we kind of point to this and say one is better than the other, and. I don't think that they necessarily have to be in a hierarchy, right? Medically, they already are, right? We know that human milk, when it can be provided, is the best first food for infants. Yes, I think all nursing mothers should go out in public without worrying about coverage or anything and just full-on nipples out. That's my feeling. And if I were able to nurse, that's what I would do. But one of the things that I think doesn't get said enough is even though this is something that like our, our bodies can do, uh, it's difficult, you know, and it is hard work and it is intentional work and, uh, it doesn't always work. Right. And so, yes, there is that sort of expectation that to be a good parent, you're, you know, you're doing this thing, you're using your body the way it was made. Right. And so that, that's a dangerous that's a dangerous road to go down as well because not not all bodies can 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 do that, you know. That if there's something that has been, you know, made for this exact purpose through these modern technologies, aren't, aren't we supposed to adopt that? Freedom of choice and support for that choice, whatever it might be. Finally, a bit of good news. All the work that Katie and the people in the NICU put in, and the donor milk from the doula network and her husband's help, have resulted in a terrific baby. He's doing great. Um, he will be 16 weeks on Monday, and uh, he's he's big boy. He's in the 86th percentile of weight and uh, over 100th percentile in length. So he's great. He's got a badass scar on the side of his chest, so... Katie Flynn. 
My thanks to her and, of course, to Amy Brown and Lindsay Naylor and Lawrence Weaver for helping guide me through this thicket. Links to all of them and much more in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com. And about the formula contamination and shortage still playing out in the US, if you want to know more, the best thing you can do is to sign up for Food Fix, a newsletter from Helena Botmiller-Evich. Again, I'll put a link in the show notes. And finally, yeah, I, I know I said finally a minute ago, but this really is finally, there is another aspect of bottle feeding that I didn't get into. Bottles, unlike breasts, are see-through. Here's Amy Brown. My PhD research was actually about that. Looked at mothers' worries about how much milk the baby was drinking, uh, not being able to see how much milk your baby had you know, consumed from the breast, but you could in a bottle. And it is still a big worry, and it is still a big part of the anxieties around stopping breastfeeding. I've got lots more to share on that, but I've kept you long enough. I'll save it for another time. So for now, from me, Jeremy Churfus, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening. Thank you.